0: Hi there, and welcome to episode 4 of Miradas with me, Laurie Blair, and co-host John Bartlett. This week we're thinking about the theme of legacies, inheritance and lineages across the Americas. In our newsflash, I spoke with Amaru Villanueva, a doctoral student in sociology from La Paz, Bolivia. We discussed Bolivia's election this October, whether Evo Morales can win a fourth consecutive term and how the country has changed on his watch. Then in our deep dive, John caught up with Christina Jimenez, a community organiser and the co-founder and director of United We Dream, the US's largest immigrant youth-led network. Uh, They discussed how different migrant organisations are laying down roots and building connections uh, and uniting to push back against Donald Trump and ICE. Uh, And then finally, in the Culture Corner, I sat down with Marcelo Martinesi, Uh, he's the Paraguayan writer and director of Las Herederas, or The Heiresses. It's a subtle and powerful movie which has been taking film festivals by storm. Uh, We talked about the challenges of making cinema in Paraguay and how the film is in many ways a, a metaphor for the country's struggle to shake off its authoritarian past. John will be back at the end to wrap things up. Uh, It's a great episode, so let's get to it. Okay, so we're joined uh, from La Paz by Amaru Villanueva, who is a doctoral student in sociology at the University of Essex, Born and raised in La Paz, Bolivia, and uh, Amaru has a wealth of experience across journalism, innovation, academia, uh, and the civil service in Bolivia and, and beyond. Um, we'll be talking about Bolivia's elections, which are coming up later on this year, uh, on October 20th. Amaru, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I, I I just wanted to kind of um, kick off by asking you, you know, how how strong is Evo looking in, in the run-up to the vote this October? Uh and And you know how likely is it you think that he might lose you know we obviously you know to rewind Avo has been in power now for about fourteen years um enjoyed large levels of popular support um you know the polls give his two two main opponents you know uh, uh they are behind him a little a little way you know how how strong do you think evo is looking and and you know is it possible that we could see an upset and and mass his party out of power
1: okay well. I think the first point to note is that strength and support is, of course, a relative measure. So I'd say in relation to the previous two or three terms of government uh, of Evo Morales, he's definitely weaker, yep. uh, along with el movimiento del socialismo. But in historical terms, it continues to be uh, one of the strongest parties, um, well, especially since democracy was reinstated, at least formally, uh, in the early 80s. And it's still, I think, by all measures, the the main political party with the largest support base in the country. Now, you mentioned some surveys. This is something I've been looking into recently, and they have to be read with some caution. The mm. uh, main reason is that, for reasons of cost, but also for reasons to do with their intended clients and audiences, uh, surveys are often carried out in urban regions mainly the metropolitan area i'd say you know the smallest surveys will cover la paz cochama santa cruz the larger surveys will cover all capital cities mm-hmm. you know and they'll have a statistical sampling framework and they might take 800 to 1100 cases but there are very few surveys that that actually cover the country's intermediate cities the rural regions and i'd say there are no surveys in the past 2 years or 3 years that cover uh, the, the, what we call you know, the, the,
2: the uh, remote rural regions sure. of the country yeah. where masses court base is largely concentrated. So even though Evo leads, and this varies month by month,
1: and you know, discounting the margin of error, you'd say that in urban and secondary cities, you know, in, in, in surveys that have uh, good coverage, Mm. Ever would be leading his main opponent, Carlos Mesa, by about six to eight percentage points. Mm. Uh, I think I think the support, this difference is likely to be larger if you took into account the whole country. Mm. Let's bear in mind that in the two thousand and sixteen referendum, the rural region that I'm mentioning voted seventy one percent for Evo Morales. Mm. So if you averaged out proportionally what what each of those segments means, I I'd say. It's not likely that Eva will, will lose the elections. At least, according to the, to the to the latest surveys, I think it will be a contested election.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In order to win, he'd have to gain more than a ten point difference and more than forty percent of the vote sure. over nearest rival. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he might go to the second round. Now, what could happen in a second round? Uh, most people tend to believe that Eva Morales would lose in, in in a second round, which would effectively be a ballotage. Mm. Because the vote would not become for one candidate or the other, but the vote would become for evil or against evil.
0: Sure. And and so in, in in that scenario, you know, uh we would yeah, perhaps see the, the the votes from the knocked out opposition candidate go go we imagine that's in that scenario to, to Carlos Mesa. Um I but I mean I'm curious to, to, to know what you know, why you think those those opposition groups haven't already sort of, you know, formed a a common slate, you know, because if you look at those, if you look at the, the numbers, and again, taking your, your your caveats there about those, it would seem as though, you know, they, they actually could gather gather quite a lot of momentum. So why, why haven't, you know, these different opposition groupings come together and, and, and joined already?
1: Well, we'd have to go back in time about a year and a half. Uh, you know, flashback to 2016-2017, Carlos Mesa would repeatedly say that he did not want to be a presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He was almost done from politics, let's not forget. He was vice president to Gonzalo Sánchez de Lozada, Goni, Mm -hmm. who eventually fled the country in a helicopter following the uprisings of 2003 in October. Mm -hmm. So he was almost done from politics, and although he did have a political role, he did not intend to compete in elections. Mm -hmm. But then I think precisely because of these surveys, he was... Positioned as the only candidate who could feasibly beat Evo Morales in an eventual runoff. Mm -hmm. So, following this signal, he kind of got pressured into, you know, without having a political party, in fact, they're using using a party slogan, a party, a registered party from Tarija that he was never really a part of.
0: Yeah, isn't, that, isn't he part of the sort of, you know, a, a kind of revolutionary leftist movement officially? You know, that's the title which of the party where he's uh, inscribed himself.
1: Well, he would have been years ago, but that party then became fragmented
0: and then its support waned. Right. Uh, it's now associated with old politics in bolivia so it's like lost its historical legitimacy
1: but back to the question of why the opposition has not been able to form uh, an alliance because if they do have something in common is that they all want their is out of power Mm. yet i think they still uh, have a lot of differences programmatically and in terms of, of their ideology there were some negotiations last year probably from the middle of 2018 to the to its third quarter and they never managed to strike an agreement now we don't know exactly what happened behind closed doors but the end result you know the main expectation of uh, of the population of the opposition in general was that los demócratas from santa cruz mm-hmm. currently headed by oscar ortiz and carlos mesa would form an alliance and that was you know we thought it would ensure the Potential victory, But that never ended up happening, probably because of internal negotiations to do with what part of power they would distribute amongst each other or differences. I think Carlos Mesa is also a resisted candidate, uh, not in all of the lowlands, but part of the people from Santa Cruz, people who would identify as Gamba. Mm. You know, they'll, they'll pick up a couple of declarations of his role in previous processes, which are to do with... Autonomy, which are to do with uh, regionalist cleavages, and he is not associated with that region. You know, I think this, this may be distorted, but someone said that he would have claimed that they were provincial. Mm. Uh, he would have uh, he would have not had a very high opinion of political and social elites in that region, and that's I think part of the segment that's coalescing around Oscar Ortiz. So to your question of what would happen in a ballotage, I don't think people who would vote for Oscar Ortiz would automatically vote for Carlos Mesa in a second round. I think that's a hypothesis Mm. that needs to be tested.
0: That's interesting. Because, yeah, you you do have this historic kind of so-called, you know, in in quotation marks, Gamba koya division in in Bolivia. And, of course, that's complicated in many different ways. But it's interesting to see that, fracture also playing out in in the in the opposition uh, as well to to an extent um i I kind of wonder you know I, my sense is that, that you know I, I, I take your point about Evo just having kind of this this underlying strength which polls probably aren't capturing I, I wonder if you still you know do you think that that his coalition and his platform is weaker than it has been in the past you know uh, I, you know I, I suppose suspect we're probably unlikely to get the numbers of sort of 2009 2014 and and if if you think that's the case you know uh, why why do you think that is you know what do you think are some of the challenges and the difficulties mass and, and the Morales administration have run into in in recent years
1: well to put things into perspective if i don't remember incorrectly in 2005 he got 59% of the vote in 2000 2009, he got 64%, mm-hmm. and then in 2014 he got 61. So those, right. I, I, I mean, 2009 is a historical high. Um, in the referendum, he lost by well, he, the the yes vote gained, I think 48.5% or some, something around there. So that was already a huge decline in his popularity. Mm-hmm. Now let's let's not assume that everyone who voted against his re-election were not potentially mass supporters.
2: Mm. Some people would have said, great, you did a great job so far, we're just not that interested in you being candidate again. Mm. But, but a lot of people who voted against uh, would have voted for Evel previously.
1: Now, if that's a barometer for, his, uh, for the level of support, you know, they've been in power for so long, it's coming up to 14 years, and in that time frame, a number of things will accumulate, some of them directly attributable to him or the government, and others to do with his surroundings and you know, municipal governments or social movements that are so associated with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, this is kind of a, a growing thing that tests what's, what's the, you know, h- how much further can, can the decline in his support go, because there's been the deep knees, the, the dispute over the uh, highway that was going to be built, Mm-hmm. Through uh, an indigenous region of the country Then you have a Fondo Indígena Which is kind of, I guess, mid to low level Corruption amongst uh, Well, and sometimes economic mismanagement Amongst uh, Some people in rural regions And indígenas and campesinos mm-hmm. And then you might think of El Caso Zapata Which is more of an operatic type scandal
0: Involving <laughs> his his supposed remounted. Lover and uh, a child That may or may not have existed,
1: right? Yeah, a child that we believe Never existed, but yeah. He at least believe did, which already makes it something interesting. Um, you know, and I could go on. There, there, there are lots of things that have a- affected his uh, either credibility, legitimacy, and support. But considering today he still has a very large support base, I mean, I wouldn't give you an exact figure, but if you take into account the rural voters I mentioned, and if you also redistributed everyone who's going to vote blanco or nulo, or people who say they don't know who they're going to vote for. If all of that's taken into account I wouldn't be surprised if he gained still 45% of the vote or maybe less from 40 to 45% that Mm. would not be a surprising result sure Um, uh, so yes I I, I still think some people vote very pragmatically people will not necessarily be ideologically aligned with mass but some people will see it in their interests and as many people in La Paz's lowlands especially big uh, big business you know soya producers Kainko. they might not like the look of him they might not like that he's from uh, a region of the country that doesn't represent them but mm. they might think things are going well for us why would you if they you know if it ain't broke don't fix it sure they yeah. might not fix the vote even if they don't like him
0: and I, I suppose on that point you know I, I should I should note for our listeners you know we also have um, allegations and I'd say a, a decent amount of evidence uh, of you know some authoritarian practices from Evo and the, and and mass. You know, e- echoing the actions of previous administrations and presidents. You know, we have, you know, him ignoring the the the, the, the narrow no vote against his re-election two or three years ago. We have the, the uh, you know the courts effectively rubber stamping his his fourth run uh, at the presidency. Um, so I think there are some. You know, I don't know whether, whether 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 how much those things really resonate in, in Bolivia. Certainly, Oscar or Ortiz has his campaign, which is literally Bolivia's. Bolivia said no. You know that seems to be the the sole platform he's he's running on there. Um, you know, I, I wonder how much those allegations of autocracy and kind of corruption resonate as well.
1: Well, I think people are concerned with the separation of powers or what they perceive to be, for instance. The electoral, Bolivia's electoral tribunal, mm. um, and it's, yeah, it has a low level of credibility. People are quite susceptible and scared that there's going to be fraud in the elections. Uh, now, on this point, I have to say, I've only in the past two months seen the opposition and I think media linked to the opposition really ramping up its whole narrative around electoral fraud. My reading of that is an expectation of their eventual defeat. I think at the start, when they did feel that they could still compete in, in these elections, and even by a, by their own surveys, maybe they're seeing that as less likely. It's almost like an insurance policy to say, even if Evo nominally wins, they will attribute it
2: um, to fraud. So, well, you know, we could also go into that mm-hmm. that whole mm-hmm. question. But I think there is a there, there is a decreasing level of credibility and legitimacy in all institutions, I think, associated with the state, from
1: the police to the judicial system to the electoral courts. In some cases, you might say it's uh, instrumentalized for political gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole campaign of the de- the de- delegitimizing, I think people do genuinely have probably good reasons to resist or oppose a government or at least have doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think this is as generalised as people... Uh, are making out or at least as much as you'd read in some media outlets now on this point of electoral fraud you know anyone I think who has been de uh, mesa or who has been a delegate in, in an electoral process knows that there are actually pretty robust systems in place mm. um, for vote counting and reporting you know and and if anything, if fraud was that possible and easy by the government, then surely they would not have lost a referendum by three points. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's a fair, um, that's a fair but, point.
1: But I think it's, it's a good reflection of people's mistrust of institutions at large yeah. and their demand for a greater separation of powers. And what I think will be really interesting, you know, even if we don't know who's going to win the next election, and it is a contested election, mm. I think the next uh, period of government will be one of transition. Because it, it will either have the mass in power, but no longer with two thirds of the legislative assembly, no longer both in control of the Senate and the chamber of deputies. Mm-hmm. Uh, most likely, mass will continue to hold control of the chamber of deputies and the opposition will hold the Senate. And that could lead to legislative deadlock. Mm. And they'll, have, they'll, they'll kind of have to learn, and even, you know, even if Gadlas Mesa wants, they will in some way have to learn how to get on, communicate and talk, come to agreements and negotiate between government and opposition to make manage, <laughs> managing the country possible in the first place.
0: Fascinating. Well, I, you know, I'm, I think we've some interesting times ahead there. Um, that's all we've got time for. Um, but um, Amari, thanks so much for speaking to us and uh, um, uh, best of luck with your ongoing research
1: much uh, for inviting me and I look forward to listening to future versions of the podcast as well.
0: Fantastic, thank you.
3: I'm joined today from New York by Cristina Jimenez Moreta, Executive Director and Co-Founder of United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth-led organisation in the US. Originally from Ecuador, Cristina arrived in New York with her family at the age of 13 as undocumented migrants and she undertook her education in the US and last year was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Cristina, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
4: Great to be here. Uh,
3: I just want to start kind of by asking you about your, your own experience in, of, of migration and obviously arriving in the US. How did that shape your understanding of, of migration as a, as a phenomenon and, and the positive effect that migrants can can have on societies?
2: I was
4: born in, um, Ecuador, um, you know, working class, um, family, you know, my dad grew, grew up, um, homeless and had struggled without a family and economically. And my mother, um, coming also from, uh, working class family who also didn't um support women in the family getting an education had struggled to um you know for economic opportunity and educational opportunity. so both of my parents you know were you know both loving uh and also very committed to ensuring that our family and that their children um had uh the opportunity to uh, a better life uh to have an education, to be able to achieve our dreams and certainly to uh, not have a repetition of their experience, um, Mm -hmm. you know, economically and and socially. Um, And, um, you know, growing up, uh, I remember not having, uh, you know, a lot of money, but having enough to uh, eat and a place to live and um, to pay for school. Uh, In Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I remember as a young uh, child uh, hearing the news that the country was on strikes, schools were shut down for Mm -hmm. weeks at a time, Uh, there were protests on the street, um, and there was a lot of political turmoil, Um, a lot of it because of the uh, political instability of the governments in Ecuador at the time. Uh, but also because uh, the banks um, supported by, you know, foreign uh, uh, policy and other countries uh, Mm -hmm. like the U.S. and others uh, took uh, power of the country um, and stole money from people, life savings. um, And and because of all of uh, the unrest socially and politically, uh, presidents were um, at the time I remember taking um, uh, out of power, and many employers and companies left the country uh, because of the lack of stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as a you know as a, as a young person not really understanding all the complexity of global politics and an economic crash and corporate greed, uh, all I understood is that what that meant for my family, uh, was that my parents were jobless and that for many months they tried everything uh, that they um, could do mm-hmm. to find jobs and just couldn't. Um, and there was some days where we wouldn't have money to eat. Um, and I started receiving notice um, notices from the school uh, saying that if we didn't pay for school, I, not, I wasn't allowed to go back in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was because we didn't have money to pay for tuition. Um, so as my parents saw themselves in, um, a moment of not having, um, money for food and for school, um, and just being so close that their worst fears, um, will become a reality for their kids, Mm
2: -hmm.
4: uh, they made a difficult decision to flee poverty and leave the, leave the country, uh, to seek a better life in the United States and, That was in 1998
2: uh, when
3: we arrived to New York City. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, your experience has clearly had a a formative effect on your career as well. And I mean, you say you you arrived in in the U.S. in in 1998. Ten years later, you founded United We Dream in in 2008. Um, Can you kind of outline the important work that the, the organization does in the U.S. for people like yourself who moved to the country?
4: Mm-hmm. Yes, United We Dream is the largest immigrant youth network in the country. We have uh, half a million members and uh, a presence of local organizations across 28 states. Um, we were founded in 2008 with the vision uh, of creating a safe and empowering space for young immigrants who had to deal with the uh, discrimination, shame, uh, racism, racism, um, of being an immigrant in this country, mm-hmm. um, and wanting to change that, wanting to create a, a world and a country where uh, immigrants and 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 people of color and all people could live without fear, could thrive and achieve their dreams. So we uh, do our work by. Um, focusing on community organizing and community empowerment. so we empower young people, train young people to be community leaders and organizers. And we lead our work through advocacy campaigns locally and nationally um, and and share our stories and, and work um, with allies and partners to change the conversation and the narrative on immigrants and immigration. We came together, Because of our experience as undocumented immigrants in this country and as as young people who envision uh, a United States that will treat immigrants with dignity and where immigrants and people of color who live freely and thrive in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, we um, have uh, been uh, creating safe spaces and empowering spaces for young people where They uh, could um, find a community of belonging as immigrants who experience discrimination um, and racism. And, you know, we came together to provide the tools and the, and the training uh, for young people to become leaders uh, and organizers and have the tools to change the world. And we have been doing this work through storytelling, community organizing, advocacy campaigns, and um, using culture change and narrative strategies to change the conversation around immigrants and immigration. Um, and since then, we have been uh, able to have major uh, policy change and, and victories um nationally locally um and, and have been um successful in building a movement that is changing the conversation and uh and keeping up the pressure for change
3: sure and it's i mean i've been following the story for for quite some time now and it's it's fantastic work that you're doing uh in the u s um without one 's going to kind of be too blunt about this the the situation has now changed um you know markedly since uh, since president trump came came to power in the u s and you know we've got these horrendous images of children in cages down on the on the southern border of the u s um kind of just as a as a kind of foundational question what has been the change under donald trump's administration and what have united we been united we dream been doing to to react to this
4: under this administration we have seen a full fledged uh attack on immigrants and Muslims and overall communities of color, um, this president has used all of the resources that have been built in a bipartisan way by Democrats and Republicans in the past um, Mm -hmm. to deport immigrants in mass. He campaigned on a promise of mass deportation um, and, uh, and ensuring that immigrants lived in a constant state of fear and terror And he has, in fact, uh, done that through his policies. Mm -hmm. Under this administration, no one is safe from uh, being a target of deportation. Um, He has made it so that uh, immigrants, particularly those who are undocumented, um, are considered a threat to national security and therefore a priority to be targeted, terrorized, and deported. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that through... Uh, increased deportations, uh, you know, family separation, children that have been kidnapped, um, separated from their families. We're seeing this that right now in this moment, as we have um, thousands of people um, in concentration camps um, where they're being held um, and where people are dying. Um, and these are people that have um, you know, come to this country to seek refuge and flee violence and, and poverty. Um, and they're being met with, um, uh, to, uh, with inhumane um, and horrific policies uh, mm-hmm. by this administration.
3: Yeah, and you, and you mentioned you mentioned there the violence and poverty that uh, that many people are, uh, are fleeing in their in their home countries. The fact remains that these that these push factors in in some Latin American countries, because we're I mean, we're talking about Latin America today, uh, and particularly at the moment in Central America and Venezuela. Although of course the the kind of the country is concerned, uh, you know, it changes quite in in quite a fluid manner. These aren't going away. These push factors. And earlier in the year, President Trump slashed aid to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Won't this exacerbate the problem rather than solve it? And are there more constructive approaches that governments can be taking to these, to these challenges?
4: I think migration um, and the movement of people um, is a phenomenon that uh, every single country needs to be thinking about as a global uh, situation that we need to think about. Um, with uh, the increased uh, threats of climate change, uh, more and more people are going to be displaced and we're already seeing this with what happened in Puerto Rico, what's happened in Haiti um, and in other countries around, uh, across the globe. The climate change is creating climate refugees. Poverty uh, is pushing people out. Violence is pushing people out. Um, and it's something that we you know, have to grapple with. Um, as we think about particularly the situation that the United States is facing right now in its southern border with Central America, um, what's important to remember um, and for policymakers to think about um, is both how um, the conditions, the social and political conditions in those countries are factors, as well as U.S. foreign policy and trade policy that has traditionally in this region... Created the conditions and uh, put uh, financial pressures on these countries, um, that have led to greater poverty um, and therefore uh, have led to people uh, for people to have uh, limited choices and you know decide to take the risk to come to this country seeking a better life. Um, you know many presidential candidates are talking about this right now in the U.S. that this is a regional and a global. Um, issue to think about, and that the approach—it's not putting kids in cages; it's not uh, having children that are dying in the hands of our government. Uh, that there are more humane ways to deal with um, refugees, uh, which you know this country has historically done. Um, has mm-hmm. it, this country has been refuge for um, people from Ireland, um, Jewish people from all over the world? Um, and many other uh, people, and so this country has has a history of um, dealing with refugees and folks that are coming to this country seeking a better life. Um, and there are better ways to do it. There are more um, humane ways to do it. The way that this administration is doing it, it's not the answer.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: There are ways uh, to one, uh, you know, look uh, and and be very. Uh, critical and analytical about our own policies and how uh, U.S. foreign policy may be pushing for this, Uh, how uh, drug consumption may be a big driver uh, for this, drug consumption here in the U.S., Um, as well as um, how, uh, as a regional partner, the U.S. can uh, play a better role in addressing uh, the regional uh, social and political challenges. Um, of uh, of these countries, uh, to ensure that we can have a better uh, transnational uh, partnership uh, to deal with um, with the refugees coming to this country um, right now. But the reality is that you know the treatment of immigrants in this country uh, has historically had. Um, a lot of pain and harm that has been inflicted in in communities from, you know, how we saw the treatment of Japanese Americans during World War II, where they were put in concentration camps, Mm -hmm. Um, just the way that we're doing it with refugees from Central America right now, um, and uh, separated families in, in, you know, similar ways, uh, to how... Mexican immigrants have been exploited through labor agreements over time uh, and also um, mistreated and deported. So, you know, there is, it's important to recognize the history that this country has of the treatment of immigrants, of slavery, uh, and the treatment of Black people, uh, as well as the treatment of Native American communities. And a lot of what we're seeing today, uh, unfortunately, reflects many of the practices
3: um and the nativist policies of the past mm-hmm. yeah it's a stark contrast nowadays to to the the cases you've mentioned there in the past um i mean just talking just briefly you, you touched upon uh, legislation and policy there um development relief and education for alien minors the dream act as it's as it's known was signed in 2001 there's also daca the deferred action for childhood arrivals signed in 2012. Um, lots of people are living in uncertainty nowadays. And I just wondered if you, I mean, from, from your own point of view and from the point of view of, of United We Dream, is current legislation sufficient in protecting the rights of migrants? And, you know, in protecting these rights, is that is that the responsibility of NGOs? Should it be falling on, on your shoulders or should this be a governmental issue?
4: We believe that um, the government has a direct impact on people's lives. And Institutions, schools, local government, city halls, and hospitals have an have an impact and interact with people every day. And when we're seeing justice and we're seeing systematic discrimination and racism and and racial profiling through many of these institutions, uh, we believe it is the role of uh, people in, in in communities as uh, individuals um, as uh, as people from the community and also organizations like United with Dream to advocate for transformational change of policies and institutions that ultimately uh, will improve the impact on people's lives. Um, You know, uh, unfortunately, we have uh, a government that um, needs the pressure um, from uh, its uh, people uh, and uh, NGOs and organizations to... Um, to be in alignment with the values and the vision of this country. And, you know, part of that, it's the role of democracy, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, where people in our communities get engaged in their government and are holding their government and their elected officials accountable um, to taking the country uh, closer and closer to its values of justice and uh, equality.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one other thing that we that's kind of noticeable at the moment with the the change of rhetoric that's cha- that's taking place is that the the responsibility in, in inverted commas for for migration is being thrust upon countries where whose citizens are the ones moving north um there's a very real risk in this in this kind of change of uh uh, change of kind of treatment of people that migrants are dehumanized and, and by this and treated as kind of pawns in a game between two governments you see like Mexico at the moment uh, you know to to keep you know to keep kind of favorable trade terms saying that they're going to tackle the migration crisis the US are kind of demanding that on their side are we doing enough to combat this kind of change in rhetoric And and what are the kind of the potential consequences from this
4: I will say right now there's a very uh, there's a very vibrant movement to uh, call on uh, the fact that our government and our policies are criminalizing people and are criminalizing the act of seeking a better life for your family and fleeing poverty and fleeing refuge mm-hmm. and fleeing for refuge um, and there is a very vibrant debate about how our policies have criminalized immigrants and not you know, taking stripping away their humanity um, and using uh, the criminality of, um, uh, of an argument to um, the poor people, to mistreat people uh, and to create the conditions in these camps where people, even children, um, are dying. Um, and I think that the, the, the hope is in the fact that there are um, thousands of people that are paying attention now, um, that are saying this is this is this is uh, not moral. This needs to change. Who are pushing for change? And you know, in my um, experience uh, organizing in social movements in the United States, um, uh, this is the first time where we have the world and people in the U.S. paying attention to uh, the horrific uh, policies. Um, of this administration that are anti-immigrant and that it builds upon many of the policies that have been built by Democrats mm-hmm. and Republicans in the past.
2: Mm-hmm. And so,
4: I think that there is a very significant opportunity to uh, fight back against the criminalization of immigrants, um, but also to make connections to how the approach of criminalizing people has been used against other communities of color in the U.S. and clear example is, you know, the way that black communities have dealt with this. Um, uh, and so issues uh, and connections around racial discrimination, racial profiling and mass incarceration are all connected. Um, the same people that support these policies uh, that are anti-immigrant and focus on, the, on deporting people are the same people that, um, that want to put more black and brown people behind bars. They're the same people Um, that believe that that we should have a Muslim ban. Um, You know, they're the same people um, that support nativist policies overall. And So Mm
2: -hmm.
4: um, for us, there's a very important opportunity to make the connections of the systematic um, racism that it's impacting communities in similar and in different ways. Um, and of communities coming together to change that. And, and we're seeing that happening across the country.
3: Yeah, it's it's good to it's good to hear from yourself that that's that is um, that is happening. That is the case. Um, just to kind of bring this round to, you know, just as a final point to a more a more positive note. We hear a lot nowadays from, you know, particularly outside the US, a lot of the kind of rhetoric from the uh, from the current administration in, in the US is, you know pulling on the on threads that are kind of dear to people and the kind of em- emphasizing the negative sides of uh of migration um according to kind of your experience and and that of kind of other other migrants that uh that you that you know and that you've worked with at United We Dream what are the kind of cohesive forces that help migrants settle in the US <laughs>
2: Um,
4: One of the greatest powers of organizations like United We Dream is that uh, we create a community, a community space where uh, people feel seen, people feel belonging, where they can have resources to, uh, you know, get connected to networks of help um, and to support each other in many of the struggles that, you know, many of them uh, may have been um, experiencing. Mm and uh, the way in which organizations play a role in supporting immigrant communities to know about their rights, to learn how to navigate, uh, you know, uh, hospitals and schools and other institutions, um, as well as getting uh, tools to be uh, and training to uh, be empowered members of our community who um who take action, who organize, who are building a community, who are supporting each other, for who are watching out for their community and not just for themselves, uh are kind of you know the powerful things that organizations like United Dream can do. And there's certainly plenty also Uh, of organizations that play a critical role in providing services to communities um, for how to have uh, legal representation or navigate legal processes of fixing your immigration status or applying for citizenship and learning English. Um, But I do believe that um, when you look at models that are much more effective um, in other countries uh, um, when it comes to helping immigrants settle into a country, the role of government is important, and unfortunately the role of this of the government in the U.S. has been to create terror and fear uh, and to target immigrant communities instead of uh, investing in uh, an effective settlement of people um, in the country um, where they can have the tools for language access, health care, um, as well as um, you know, feeling welcome and feeling respected uh, by the government and valued by the government.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, you know, this in this moment, um, uh, immigrants feel quite the contrary, uh, where they feel targeted, not wanted, uh, hated, um, and this administration has fueled um, even more hate um, across um across the country against these communities. And you're seeing that. You're seeing more bullying in schools, Mm -hmm. um, more uh, attacks um, in public spaces, whether that's a restaurant or a train station. Um, And at the same time, you're seeing the role that organizations like United We Dream and the resiliency of our community uh, plays in, um, in, in continuing to fuel uh, hope
3: uh, in, in immigrant communities. Sure. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, resili- resilience and solidarity breeding hope is a, a good positive note to finish on. So, Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. It's been it's been lovely to chat. Great to be here. Thanks
4: for having me. Thank
0: you. Okay, so I'm here in the uh, basement of the Barbican Centre in London with uh, Marcelo Martinez, who is a, uh, a writer, a director, and producer of, of cinema. Um, Marcelo, thanks very much for, for, for joining me. Um, Thank you. And uh, Marcelo originally uh, hails from Paraguay, although he has a uh, very strong heritage here in in the UK and in, in Britain. Um, most recently, uh, just over a year ago, uh, your film which you uh, wrote, directed, and, and co-produced, uh, Las Herederas, or The Heresses, uh came out, and it's really been received, you know, huge... Uh, International acclaim since then, um, four uh, awards from the uh, Berlin International Film Festival, uh, and various other kind of prizes and, and recommendations. Um, how has that process been for you? How has the past year been? The past experience, you know, experiences of that kind of
5: really, a really whirlwind year. Um, well, thank you very much for this opportunity to discuss a bit the film in such a lovely place. You know, I really like the Barbican. <laughs> and I, I think London was part of all the development of my projects because I spent a lot of time writing here, and also having some input of cultural life in London. Uh, it, it's been a, it's been a very interesting year of, uh, if we say that, uh, I mean, for any director, it's a great chance to meet different publics. You know, I've been to Egypt, uh, Australia, India, Romania. Edinburgh, Seattle, Mexico, everywhere with the film. and that gives you kind of a great perspective of what different cultures or different audiences uh, how they receive and they react to the film. it gave me an opportunity to talk a bit more about culture and my country. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time it was very, very tiring. you know it's like <laughs> uh, it's what we have to do you know promote the film. I, I feel it's, uh, it gives the film a lot more life. But at the same time, I really enjoy a lot being on my own, writing, you know, or developing... A, I would have liked also to have more time to develop a new project.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I, I was really struck by a, co- a comment you've made pre- previously, sort of questioning whether uh, this film is, is a, you know, a European film set in Paraguay or, or a sort of, you know, a, a Paraguayan film kind of made for Europe in the sense of, you know, perhaps we're seeing... Uh, uh, you know, some of the kind of framing devices, the cinematography, the, the
5: themes aren't things which are traditionally sort of dealt with in, in, in Paraguayan cinema. Well, I feel that the film is extremely Paraguayan. Mm. I mean, I, I think that the heart of the film is in Paraguay and the whole story uh, departs from many feelings related to my roots where, I, where even though if I have uh, ancestors in Italy or in, in Britain, I feel that I'm very Paraguayan, and uh, mm. more than anything. So, of course, we we work with people from many countries, like productions do everywhere, and uh, and it's re- sometimes it's difficult to to think uh, of the influences. You know, of course, I love uh, the cinema of Casabach. I love the cinema of Berman but I also love the cinema of Lucrecia Martel, or I love the cinema of many uh, cinema novel artists from, like, Glauber Rocha from Brazil. Mm-hmm. So I feel that all the influences also shape the, your taste and the way you approach uh, a subject or a theme when you were. Absolutely. And, and j- just to give a kind of plotted synopsis for, for our kind of listeners, some of
0: whom I hope uh, you know uh, will go and see the film after we after hearing this, but it's, it's a story of... Uh, an older lesbian couple uh, whose relationship is sort of coming apart quite quite abruptly, um, and uh, the action really centres on on, on Cella, played you know beautifully by Anna Brunn, who who sort of has to sort of come out of her shell and, and confront this uh, this kind of uh, world around her, this kind of world of the Ascension, let's say bourgeoisie, upper classes. Uh, it's a world of of sort of tea parties, of, of gossip, a very kind of feminine world actually, um, but one which she kind of increasingly feels uh, sort of more uh, confident moving in and the sort of film ends on this kind of quite, quite hopeful kind of, uh, sort of scene of her actually sort of, you know, leaving, leaving the home she shared with her partner of 30 years and kind of striking out almost, almost by herself. I mean, to, to what extent for you is that, kind of, you know, writing the film, putting it together, is that a parable of, of, kind of contemporary parable, you know, is that a metaphor that you're sort of, you know, working with there or, or, or is it more of a
5: personal story? Um, a bit of both. Uh, the, the departure was always a metaphor. I mean, I always think and rethink how can I make a film to show this romance between the dictatorship and the petit bourgeoisie of my country? Because if we had a dictatorship for 35 years, it is because there was a romance with the dictator and this ruling class. You know? Even though they won't want to admit it, because today it's not politically correct to admit it, there must have been a romance there. And what happened when he left? You know, what happened when this person that was managing the country or the house in the case of the heresies? What happens when this person who makes all decisions that we call in Jopara, which is a mix of and Spanish, we call Papahuasú? What happens when this person leaves? You know, leaves the scene and, uh, and, and we are left on our own, having to find our own devices to survive, having to drive ourselves, our destiny. So all these questions were at the heart, at the beginning of the film. And I also wanted to make a film that assumed that a couple of two uh, uh, two women is uh, is a couple. You know, I didn't want to make a LGBTQ film uh, where uh, I said, or let's say, I didn't want to make a militant film. Mm. I said, I'm gonna make a film that assumes couple as a couple you know i didn't i didn't need to put a lot in the film in order to give explanations or a sex scene in order Mm. to show you that they're a couple and i think that uh, i'll go somewhere else if i continue talking about it because i think (laughs) that's what some people sometimes is more afraid of what they don't see yeah especially in paraguay uh, as opposed to what they really see But I felt that, going back to your question, at the beginning was this metaphor, and of course the characters started to have their own life, their own shape on on paper first and then on the screen. And of course adding Anna Brun, Margarita Irun, Anna Ivanova, all these great women who added a lot to their characters as well, Mm. shaped the film differently and made it, I think, a lot more honest even Mm. because of course they brought their life experiences to the set. And I had an opportunity to really work with them for a period of time that made it made it possible to make it also, you know, a very intimate and honest story. Absolutely. I mean, and some of these some of the actors there, I think Anna, Anna
0: Brun in particular, you know, was really a first time uh, cinema a- actor in this context. She's done theatre and other things before, but you know, um, I think you can really see that that, that freshness um, uh, on the screen these very kind of subtle understated performances and you know you, you, you mentioned there that the idea that you know paraguayan society maybe it's, we can sometimes be more outraged by what it doesn't see and i think there was a case in point in in, in the senate in, in congress in paraguay where in the, the film and, and anna brun was in the process of being praised and honored by by congress um and then a so-called liberal party senator you know uh, effectively stood up and, and said you know i'm going to put up with this this, you know, lesbian uh, lesbian rubbish, you know, uh, some, some very kind of, you know, intolerant comments coming from some sections of society, you know, w- to what extent do you think the film has produced a bit more of a debate and a bit more discussion about you know, um, those, sort of, those sorts of issues?
5: As I always say, if I wanted the film to be accepted and praised in Paraguay and everybody liking it and everybody going to a cinema and enjoying it, I wouldn't have... Written this film, you know, I knew the heresis was something else. I knew it was going to be accepted by some part of society and really rejected by others. I didn't know, of course, to what extent it will be given attention. The film received a lot more attention than I expect. A lot more attention than the one I expected, mainly because of the well, uh, well reception in Berlin. And also because we had great journalists who are able to look at the future and really, uh, really m- help the promotion of the film. You know, we had TV and journal journalists from uh, paper journalists from Paraguay going to Berlin. We had that also opened up the debate before the film was even released in the country. And as soon as they found out that oh, at the center of the film there is a lesbian couple, a lot of people said, "Uh-uh, what is this?" You know, I mean after considering probably Anna Brun a rock star when she came back to Paraguay, all of a sudden people start questioning what are we celebrating? You know, what mm. is this? And I'm and that made me more that one of the I think one of the of the right things we did when we made the film was uh, creating this uh, giving these characters a life that wouldn't offend anyone, even the fun- people who have fundamentalist beliefs. But they were offended before watching the film. And yeah. that's what I talk about. People is more offended at what they don't see because they create this all, all, all their own fears that are inside their heads, kind of grow and grow and grow. And they say, oh my God. Of course, they said the children should not be watching this. Uh, I mean, you go to a cinema and from the screen there will be some x-ray that will make you lesbian if you go and watch it. These crazy thoughts of people that I think also expose... How, how medieval the country is in, in many ways. But on the other hand, we had great debates, you know, about uh, not only about uh, 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 lesbian issues per se, you know, like the uh, Serafina, uh, the La Serafina, which is a great cultural and militant group of lesbians, really embraced the film and created a lot of debates around it. They were very happy with the attention that they were getting through the film. But I think also the film raises other issues, you know, about class, about um, political issues like we mentioned earlier that could be read in the film, and also, um, like many films, that w- when you can, when you have an opportunity to read the layers, I think it creates a lot of a better conversation. It creates a lot of a better debate. Absolutely, and and thinking about, you know, obviously this is not the first.
0: Uh, film you've, you've made by a long way you know I think the first major feature I'm right saying is was Paray Norte in 2009 and what, you know what you know given given perhaps that uh, you know uh, a, a lack of public understanding about what the film industry is the other factors what's it like being a filmmaker in Paraguay you know what are the kind of you know conditions and, and sort of you know opportunities and challenges involved in, in making films in, in and about Paraguay
5: well, as opposed to many countries surrounding us, like Brazil, Argentina, and even Bolivia, we still don't have a cinema institute or cinema law. I mean, it's in the make at the moment. And also, we don't yet have a, a specific funding for cinema. You know, like Uruguay have about five. You know, Argentina has several. Yeah. Brazil as well. So what happened is that that's, I mean, cinema lives in a place where the, there is a public understanding of the importance of cinema. So I'm on the, one, on the one hand, I'm very happy about what's happening in Paraguay. A lot of people making films, a lot of people wanting to tell stories. But on the other hand, of course, it's very difficult. I mean, a lot of these people are struggling. They made one project, and then it was so difficult that if nothing big happens with the project, they will probably never make a film again. So I think it's about time that we realize I mean the ministry of culture the and the, the authorities in general that uh, the cinema needs support and uh, and I think it's like uh, I always try to give the example of the people think oh we can only use money for health or for you know building roads and I th- and I feel cinema also build bridges you know it also heal uh, a lot of uh, a lot of heal a lot of, uh, I don't know how you call it, a lot of... Uh, historical wounds. Yeah. Wounds, yeah. yeah. Heal the yeah. wounds in, in the society. So I feel is I mean, you have great examples in Britain and in many places of the influence of film, in the cultural and even in the political life of a country. Mm-hmm. So I feel we're missing a lot if we don't support cinema. Sure. Uh, I think I'm, I'm right in saying that you, you, know, you were, you were uh, the first director of, of
0: public TV in Paraguay under the... Uh, Fernando Lugo administration it seems like there were some moves during that period to, to try and sort of improve uh, the, the sort of, let's say the broadcasting and media landscape kind of maybe try and create some sort of public investment in in those sort of things you know what do you think there's that there are kind of moves in, the, in that direction and, and you know uh, I guess sort of you know, do you see kind of any, any green shoots in terms of institutions spaces bodies that, that can you know promote independence
5: yeah, for me it was in many ways a spring in the in the history of Paraguay, uh, from 2008 till the coup d'etat of 2012. And I feel that in many ways I was shaped by my experience in the public television because I come from a privileged background that I didn't have a chance to see as much as I saw during my time working at the public television and with everything that happened afterwards. So do, I do feel that... Um, uh, we, uh, I do feel that in many times, I- in many ways, the Colorado Party has done a, l- a lot of uh, horrible... Uh, ha- ha- is in, in, in many ways responsible of many of the horrible things that were done in the country, not only Stroessner, not only the dictator, you know, like we want to say, or even the Morini or the dictator before, it's not only about that, it's about a whole group of people that support a way of seeing that the country is the party you know mm-hmm. and that really harm a lot that really damaged a lot the uh, Paraguay and I feel that I was involved in a project to try to improve the quality of democracy I don't think Paraguay can be called a democracy how can you call a democracy a country where people buy their seat in Senate how could you call democracy a country where the information is owned by three families that's not a democracy. You're referring to the very,
0: you know, uh, extensive media concentration in Paraguay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Media empire. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking forward, you know, obviously we have a very young population in Paraguay. You mentioned the fact that you know there are, there are new content producers, film producers out there. You know, perhaps better connected, you know, population than ever before. You know, what's your, what are your kind of, you know, what do you think is 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 coming in the, in the coming sort of decades? Do you see? You know, are you optimistic when you think about, you know, what's coming
5: to apparently? Well, even though we are under a Colorado government now, I mean, I feel very optimistic about what's happening in the parliament, you know, getting rid of four or five guys so far. Yeah. I mean, big, big groups of corruption. I feel that still the big, big ones have not been touched but I hope they are. I mean, I, I strongly believe in the, in the body as a political element. I think we have to go to march, we have to go to the square, we have to protest, and I think the body is still in Paraguay the most important political uh, weapon we have. And I believe that the young people are uh, using their body a lot more than many people that didn't believe in marching, that didn't believe in occupying spaces. I feel that uh, also, um, in in many ways, uh, we do have um, opportunities with the with everything that's happened now with um, allowing access to public information that we didn't have before, and in that sense, I am optimistic.
2: Sure.
0: And, and just finally,
5: uh, what's what's next for you? You know, uh, I,
0: it seems as though perhaps the, the, the cycle from the Harris is, is more is more or less kind of died down, are you writing something, something new, you know, can you reveal anything about the next project and, and will it be you know, focused on, on Paraguay? Uh,
5: yeah, well going back to everything we have talked about, I ask myself all the time what is it to be a Paraguayan filmmaker, you know, coming from a country with such a tragic history uh, no tolerance to diversity, uh, a country with such a big inequality you know so I feel that those thoughts are going to shape my next project always, the fact of belonging. I mean, my roots are in Paraguay. I feel that I am Paraguayan more than anything else. And that's the, even though I sometimes I have been and I would always like being involved in projects internationally, I feel that uh, the most honest stories I would tell are always in Paraguay. So I feel that I'm writing, I have several pages with ideas, with thoughts, with memoirs, and out of that something will come up. I really have not given shape yet, but I think it will be something always related to, or concern about that belonging to Paraguay. I, 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 I love this, uh, there's a guy that said, Paraguay is not a country, it's an obsession. And I, and I do feel it is. Yeah, I can certainly, certainly
0: relate to that. And you know, and there are many thousands of stories um, there waiting to be told. Um, Marcelo Martinesi, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Larry.
3: Thank you. And there we have it, another episode of Miradas. We heard from Bolivian PhD candidate Amaru Villanueva, who gave Laurie an analysis of the political landscape in the country with the general election looming in October this year. And I spoke to Cristina Jimenez, the co-founder of United We Dream, about the work of her organisation and the situation facing both settled and arriving migrants in the US under Donald Trump. Finally, Laurie went to the Barbican in London to catch up with the Paraguayan film director, Marcelo Martínez, where they spoke about his new film, Las Herederas, or The Heiresses, and the steps it has taken towards challenging views in Paraguay and reckoning with the country's authoritarian past. If you can, then please rate and subscribe to Miradas on iTunes, Spotify and Soundcloud, and share us with your networks, as it really does help us get the word out there. And finally, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at MiradasPod. Uh, You can check out our website and join our mailing list at www.miradaspodcast.com and email us with any requests or comments on info at miradaspodcast.com. Our music, as ever, is by the brilliant Chilean band La Mordiante, and our logo is designed by cartoonist Diego Cumplido. You can find more information and links to their work on our website. So until next time, it's goodbye for myself and Laurie. Goodbye.